0: Welcome back to another episode of Thinking Critically. Um, I, again, have Patrick Maloney on because of what's going on with the COVID-19 epidemic. But instead of just referring to him as Patrick this time around, he is now a freshly minted doctor. He is a Dr. Maloney. Anyway, uh, Dr. Maloney, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate having you back, uh, back with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So how does it feel to be a freshly minted doctor? Because you, you're not even a week out, right? No, not even a week out.
1: Um, you know, it doesn't feel that different to be all that honest with you. So I was the first person in LSU history to present their dissertation defense online. And uh, I mean... It's kind of tough uh to be honest with you, because you're not you're not there, you're not sharing things with your family with your friends, you're not socializing afterwards uh the coronavirus pandemic has sort of affected all aspects of society, and that includes dissertation defenses um but overall, the dissertation defense went really well, and um yeah i uh i I really don't know what to say even it's still like it's still surreal it still hasn't sunk in yet that I am actually you know done and uh yeah now i'm just applying to you know various jobs and uh actually have to do revisions on my dissertation as everybody does uh when they when they submit them so absolutely I'm on those as well um, <laughs> okay. yeah but it should be all officially submitted uh this upcoming monday yeah. so the
0: uh, revision requests weren't substantial nothing nothing too big
1: No, no, nothing, nothing too huge. Um, Everything was pretty much in order. Uh, So our dissertation is structured um, in a three paper format. So that, that means that by the end of the, by the end of your dissertation, you should have three papers that you can go ahead and you can publish in in journals. So you're, you're publication ready. Um, And they, they do that. So you can cover a wider array of topics and you can get more publications under your belt. And uh, my first two papers were really good. And uh, my third paper just had a little bit of revision that needed to be done. But I did notice that I had a... Natalie's waving me off but about it. <laughs> Natalie's my wife. She's telling me not to tell you this. But I had a coding <laughs> error in my first paper. So I had to go back and revise revise that. So didn't change my results all that significantly. But even the best of us, even those of us who call ourselves doctors make those pretty substantial coding errors. <laughs> well,
0: nobody's perfect, right? Nobody's perfect. And we no, all make those errors. mistakes. Yeah. And when you recognize those mistakes, it's important that you, uh, you rectify it though, instead of just Absolutely. letting it, yeah, you got to go back and fix it for sure.
1: I wasn't so, yeah. just going to, I was just going to let the paper go to publication. So the, yeah, yeah. the person who was helping me with it, because we had to do, we, we had to uh, Without getting overly technical, we had to do some additional components of the analysis, and then we realized that the components of the analysis that we were trying to conduct were built on you know sort of faulty assumptions and uh, she said, "Well, things go, can go to print without with there being errors, but we've got to deal with it down the line." And I was like, "I am not submitting <laughs> my dissertation with with errors in it. it. will be it will be done, it will be revised." <laughs>
0: Yeah. So was that something that, so that was a a colleague caught that mistake? It wasn't something that you, uh, like it went off to the referees and then one of the reviewers found that there was some sort of error in the coding?
1: Well, uh, yeah. So it was one of my committee members, one of my dissertation committee members. Um, so when you're doing a PhD, um, you typically have around five people that sit on your committee and they provide guidance throughout the whole process. And then at the, at the culmination of the process, either accept or reject your dissertation. Um, yeah, so she was the one who I was working with on this one aspect of the paper. We caught the error. But um, somewhat embarrassingly, it's already been submitted to the journal. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm going to have to correct, correct the error when, when I get the revisions back. <laughs> but it won't, be that, it won't be that at the end of the world. It wouldn't be yeah. the first time somebody's made an analytical error in a journal. Uh, well, prior to it going to public publication. And obviously, you want to catch it before you publish those results.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You don't want to uh, be putting wrong results out into the scientific sphere. <laughs> absolutely. For then yeah. people to draw wrong conclusions from. No, yeah, I mean, that's just, uh, you know, for those tuning in, that's just a part of the scientific process, right? You know, yeah. you make mistakes and you correct them. Um, and then when it comes to science over the years, You know, new science or old science is then replaced with even better science. So you're building on old results, and it's just this cumulative process of uh, of the scientific method. It's just kind of how it's done. Yeah, absolutely. So I think sometimes
1: over time is how we advance as uh, a scientific community.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, that's super interesting. Uh, So okay, so. Doing the final revisions. You'll be submitting those on Monday, and then what's the what's the next step after this? So postdoc fellowship. Are you looking for? Well,
1: not sure yet. We're gonna we're gonna see where I wind up. Um, but yeah, not uh, not counting anything out. Applying to a wide array of places, and then hopefully going to land somewhere um, that's gonna be a good fit for
0: me. But yeah. definitely something in epidemiology, right? You're staying oh, in yeah, the field, or, yeah.
1: Yeah, okay. <laughs> I've uh, been working towards it for the better part of a decade. I wouldn't be leaving it now,
0: especially <laughs>
1: yeah. when things.
0: Yeah, I was are- gonna say right now is is a good time to be kind of an epidemiologist, right? I mean, we could we could, we definitely need uh, individuals such as yourself out, uh, kind of figuring out the best way to tackle diseases in general, in particular the COVID nineteen.
1: Yeah, well, it's actually like an interesting dynamic. So a lot of people that I've been that I've been speaking with are always like, "Oh, well, you picked a you know a great field to be in at, at this time," and um, that's not necessarily true. Um, I, I mean, from a from a job security standpoint, um, or economic standpoint, or however you want to phrase it, um, and it's also not good from a public health perspective. And let me let me tell you why. So. Um, whenever you have a disaster type situation, so whether not, whether it's a natural disaster like a hurricane or tornado or something along those lines, or a health disaster like the Ebola outbreak or like the coronavirus outbreak that you're experiencing now, that causes massive systematic disruptions to the healthcare system. And that's a result of all healthcare efforts being focused on that single solitary situation. So right now, we're focusing on coronavirus, as we should, but a lot of other things are going by the wayside. So we're not dealing with other infectious diseases. We're not dealing with chronic diseases. Research has basically ceased in these other areas, and all efforts of hospitals, public health agencies, both uh, state and federal, and even local um, Agencies are all focused on the coronavirus response, and that's going to lead to deficiencies down the line and the other aspects of public health. So with in particular to my research, I deal mostly with vaccine preventable diseases and you can expect a massive disruption in the delivery of standard vaccines to both children and adults because people are not going to be going to their local retail pharmacies or stores or their primary care provider. To get their vaccinations because of the concerns around the coronavirus. So when this all wraps up at some point down the line, there's going to be a lot of catch-up to be played with those various preventive care measures. So it's sort yeah. of an interesting thing that not a lot of people think about, is when we're dealing with the coronavirus specifically, we sort of set everything else on the back burner.
0: Yeah, no, I definitely can, definitely can appreciate that and see how the... The current pandemic is, you know, taking front and center stage for anything in health healthcare related, and how everything kind of takes a back seat, and that we're definitely going to see the repercussions of that uh, triage, if you will, uh, down the line, where we gave priority to, you know, like you said, as we should, to the coronavirus uh, pandemic, but then everything else, we're gonna have to play and catch up. So well, it's, that, it's- that's interesting.
1: Yeah, but it's a it, in the Western nations like us and in Europe, we're going to catch up pretty quickly. But it's going to the coronavirus is going to have devastating, long-lasting repercussions in places like Central and South America, Africa, Southeast Asia. All of these countries are still dealing with massive threats to their global health from an infectious disease standpoint. So all of these programs that we have towards reducing and eliminating malaria and HIV, reducing the incidence of diarrheal diseases. All of those programs are going by the wayside now that we're focusing on coronavirus. So you're going to see a big uptick in mortality as a result of those infectious diseases globally, but specifically in those underserved areas because of all the efforts that are being paid to coronavirus. And that's nothing to be said of the fact that coronavirus is gonna hit those areas much harder than it hits the the Western countries because they don't have the healthcare delivery systems that we have here in the United States. And um, they just have less supplies, they have less personal protective equipment, they have um, less essential equipment like ventilators, they can't provide supportive care in the numbers that we can here in the United States. So when the pandemic finally reaches Africa, for example, in substantial proportions, it's going to be, it's going to be a, a very tough, tough situation down there.
0: Yeah, no, I definitely can see that with the, uh, the third world countries struggling a little bit more to recover from something like this just because of, um, from a resource allocation standpoint, mm-hmm. um, third world country versus, you know, perhaps here in the United States, uh, our recovery time. But uh, what I thought was interesting is the... Again, how the pandemic is displacing kind of all of these things that we would normally take care of that would be addressed, but then they get put on the back burner. And I can't help but think about how, you know, a lot of people, um, at least at first, I think more people are catching on to this, but with the social distancing, the concept of flattening the curve, how part of it is you don't want to overwhelm the healthcare system with COVID 19 patients, but people fail to take into account that hospitals just don't see people that have COVID-19. You have all of these other things that that hospitals normally have to take care of, you know, people with strokes, heart attacks, Um, you know, maybe they have some sort of chronic condition, um, like severe asthma attacks, things of that nature, where they would have to have access to the emergency room, but then you know, if the healthcare was, the system was overwhelmed, they wouldn't, they wouldn't do that. And they could perhaps, they could potentially go and die as a result of not having access to emergency care that they would normally get if there wasn't, you know, a pandemic going on.
1: So I sort of have three things that I want to say with respect to that. One is, yes, you are seeing, or you're going to see trouble with delivering healthcare to those people who have other sort of emerging conditions like health, like heart attacks and strokes. It's going to present some challenges with people who do have other sort of comorbid conditions or preexisting conditions like diabetes, for ex- for example, or hypertension. But there are going to be also a massive reduction in the number of like car accidents that you're going to see and like all of those sorts of things. Not saying that it's going to balance out, but that is another like unanticipated effect. Like you'll probably see less car accidents, less gunshot wounds, stuff like that. So that's one thing. Um, the second thing is, um, I think that maybe we should talk about a little bit later because there's one thing I want to talk about first, but um, is is the lack of insurance that individuals are going to have as a result of these layoffs and furloughs that a number of organizations are having to go through dealing with the tough economic times that we find ourselves in. I read one study that estimated that there's going to be 35 million additional people uninsured within the next three months as a result of those layoffs and furloughs. And that's in addition to the 30 million people that are already uninsured in the United Mm -hmm. States. So you're talking about 75 million people in the United States. That's over a quarter of our population without insurance. And when you think about the healthcare costs associated with coronavirus, the average coronavirus inpatient uh, encounter is costing people about $35,000. Like that's, that's like bankruptcy money to a lot of people in the world. And then the third thing I think we should talk about is the, the flattening of the curve. Um, Just what that means to to people in general. And I think that might actually be a good place to to start with everything. So I'm sure that everybody's heard the term flattening the curve and um, they might not exactly know what it means. So, The curve refers to an epidemic curve. So an epidemic curve measures the number of incident cases or new cases that you're having on a day-over-day basis. And obviously, if you have more cases in a shorter period of time, that curve is going to be much more, going to arrive at a peak much sooner. And that peak is going to be drastically larger than if you had a smaller number of cases over a longer period of time. So when you hear flattening the curve, we want to get to a point where we're having a small number of cases over a longer period of time so we don't overwhelm our health system. And if we can flatten that curve to such a sufficient level, we can also reduce our mortality rates. So by keeping the burden on the health system low, we can treat every patient with the care that's necessary, we can provide appropriate palliative care, and we can get those people back healthy sooner. But if a lot of individuals get sick at the same period of time, if you have these massive outbreaks or super spreading events, then that's what's going to cause those peaks in the curve, overwhelming of the system and increased mortality rates. So that's what what it means when you say flatten the curve. So I just wanted to explain to, to your listeners what the importance of that is. And like, it's sort of a buzzword going around, but it, you know, is sort of not defined in a lot of cases.
0: Yeah. Some people, I mean, hopefully at this point because it has been discussed ad nauseum by a number of different outlets that people have uh, a better understanding, but I, you know, it's always good to go over it again. And I know that, uh you know, from what I've I've encountered on like social media, let's say there's some people that still seem to not grasp this concept. And what I wanted to ask you real quick about was uh, what do you mean by super, you said super spreading event. I was curious as as to what you meant by that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So that's, that's actually really interesting. So a super spreading event is an event where a lot of people are in a very small geographic area and the spread of the virus is going to translate very easily or transmit very easily between individuals. But the sort of key to the super spreading events is those individuals are then going to fly to different locations and have isolated outbreaks. They're gonna give rise to isolated outbreaks from their individual case. So for example, uh, like here in New Orleans, we had Mardi Gras. And although there were no confirmed cases in New Orleans at the time, we have some pretty strong evidence to suggest that there was coronavirus here during Mardi Gras. It was being spread among the population. And then those individuals who were sick, who might've been asymptomatic taking the plane home, then could give rise to secondary outbreaks as a result. But the better, not better, but more recent example would be spring break in Florida, Mm -hmm. where the, the local political The the governor of Florida chose not to take the steps that were necessary to inhibit the spread of coronavirus. So basically, that would have been closing the beaches, closing the bars, closing the restaurants in South Beach, Fort Lauderdale, Tampa, or other big population centers. Florida as a state did not do any of those things. So there was a lot of free flow, mixing of populations, lack of social distancing, And there were a lot of individuals who became ill during that time, and then took it home to their families, took it home to their friends, and were spreading it there. So super spreading events are these events that can take the virus to previously uninfected areas.
0: Okay. So are you referring to perhaps like large religious organizations, like getting together and uh, you know, holding mass or some sort of event, um, then perhaps you know a lot of people being in close proximity and then going out. And, but I suppose that they wouldn't be traveling across the nation or something like that, as yeah. where you would have, it for let's say, spring break.
1: They're they're definitely more localized, but that can definitely cause a cluster of illnesses. So a cluster is um, something. A cluster of illnesses is, is an occurrence when individuals that share a similar geographic region, um, or location like a church, or a school, or uh, something along those lines, or apartment complex, something along those lines, where you see a high influx of cases. And you can see those cases occur very quickly within those enclosed spaces, and that would, that would cause a cluster of illnesses. And that would, something, would be something that we would typically investigate um, if we didn't know the cause, but in this case, most of most of what these these outbreaks and these clusters that we're noticing are in fact coronavirus, so we know exactly what they are. Okay. So, and that sort of that sort of speaks to the way the different way that we we are approaching the outbreak now. So, in the infancy of an outbreak, in something like a respiratory virus that's extremely infective and can spread very rapidly you have a very narrow window in which you can prevent widespread outbreaks throughout our country. In this case, the United States, Um, if you miss that window, your focus shifts from preventing the outbreak to flattening the curve. So in the United States, our perspective is switched from preventing widespread outbreaks, preventing it from reaching every state in the United States, preventing people from becoming ill being sure that we don't have this sort of widespread spread or transmission of disease. It shifted from that to flattening the curve. So we've come to expect that a significant number of Americans are going to become infected with the coronavirus. A significant number of Americans are going to die, but by flattening that curve, we can reduce the number of Americans that would die and, and the, if they if the curve had been flattened opposed to there been a big peak overwhelming the healthcare system. So our goal now isn't to reduce infectivity in over the long term, because we've we've accepted the fact that probably somewhere between 40 to 70% of the United States population at one point or another is gonna become infected with coronavirus. What we wanna do is we wanna reduce that mortality rate from the 3.5% that you know you typically see. Put out there down you know, lower and lower and lower preferably as low as possible if we can get it you know less than one percent less than you know a half a percent or even one tenth of one percent so
0: again, and one of the ways that we do that is flattening the curve right the yeah. only way we
1: do it is by flattening the curve
0: or, reducing the mortality rate I know that they're looking at various uh Sort of medical interventions or medications, let's say, where you can once you can can once you contract the virus, uh, that it can help to um, I don't want to su- suppress or do something to your body's response so that it increases your survivability and lowers the, mm-hmm. the mortality rate. But um, the, now I don't know I don't know if any anything is on the market yet. I know that the president has touted a few different medications not recommended by the scientific community? Uh, None of the
1: medications to my knowledge that the president has brought up have shown to be efficacious in reducing, (laughs) um, has been shown to be efficacious in reducing mortality or severe illness. But so what you bring up is a great point. So there are a lot of things that reduce mortality, right? The number of doctors that we have, the number of nurses, the number of ventilators, the number of um, palliative cares that we have or treatments or something along those lines, but the problem is is we have limited resources, and the number of resources that we have are generally fixed insofar as we can't bring many more medical professionals in we can't bring more nurses in. We seem to be stuck in this quagmire where we're not producing uh, enough personal protective equipment like N95 masks, face shields, scrubs, gowns, all of those sorts of things. So right now we're at a point where the resources that we would use to decrease the mortality rate are being exhausted. So the only thing that we can contribute as a society right now in this moment before we have a vaccine or before we have more readily available treatments is to flatten that curve. So we don't overburden the already... Thin amount of resources that we have so that's what we need to do as as a society is move towards
0: flattening that curve so social distancing and hand washing
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely um, but there's a lot of other things that that you can you can be doing um, so and obviously these are all gonna these are all gonna vary based on you know your personal situation so there's there's a lot of people, unfortunately, that have lost their jobs or work in industries that are on the front lines, like the grocery store workers and um, uh, tellers, gas station attendants, uh, nurses, doctors. All these individuals, like they they can't prevent themselves from being exposed to the virus. But others of us, you know, we can self quarantine. We can isolate. There are things that a lot of companies have done to, uh, for example, going remote, going remote, holding meetings via Zoom, not bringing people into like an office and stuff like that. So there's actually been like that's one of the few things that's been encouraging about this outbreak is a lot of things happened on a local level uh, from private corporations and private businesses that helped and aided to flatten the curve. So if you're a business owner, uh, if you haven't already, obviously sending your employees home, working remotely. Doing everything that you can to maintain a sort of clean area like within your home Uh, so obviously people are gonna have to go out you've got to get groceries and everything like that but being knowledgeable and being cognizant of what you're doing while you're out there so that would be wearing gloves wearing a face mask and wearing them properly so I And this was actually a thing. Uh, Natalie, my wife and I, we went to Costco, she put on her gloves and then she touched her phone. And I was like, babe, once the gloves go on, you can't touch anything else. You can't touch anything else that you're bringing back with you or into the car because you're turning that thing that you touch into a fomite, which Mm -hmm. is an inanimate object that can carry the virus. So if you touch anything with the gloves, that you wouldn't touch with your hands, you're turning that into a potential vector for the disease. So you need to be cognizant of proper glove use. Don't reuse them, dispose of them after you use them. Masks, you know, use cloth masks, but wash between uses um, if you're using a bandana or any of the number of things that you can see. Social distancing, hand sanitizing, uh, washing your hands properly. So for 20 seconds, all the way up to the elbows, uh, yeah, I don't think like a lot of people do. Take. I don't
0: think a lot of people wash their hands like that. Yeah, yeah. The, all the way up to the elbows. I know that um, I, I actually don't do that. When I wash my hands, I, I, apparently I should start doing that. I mean, I go past the wrists, but I don't, I don't go all the way up to the elbow. I didn't well, realize that. So you got to wash your hands like a surgeon.
1: Yes. Well, think about it this way. When you go and you wipe your face like this, you know, yeah. so you're wiping your face with your whole forearm. And if you have a virus that's sitting on your arm, you're now transmitting it to the mucous membranes. Okay. Which sort of goes into you know, talking about what coronavirus is in terms of its, its disease group. So it's a, it's a respiratory virus, but it's spread via droplets. So it's not airborne. You can't be in a room and you know, inhale coronavirus from somebody who's like 30 feet away from you. Uh, it's spread by close contact via respiratory droplets. So droplets are something that's secreted when somebody sneezes or coughs. It's, um, it's a small microscopic amount of mucus that's expelled and contains some amount of virus. This lands on surfaces or it can land on you or your hands or something along those lines. And then when you go and if you have virus on your hands, for instance, you touch your eye, you touch your mouth, that would be a way for the virus to come into your body and actually infect you. And the other way is if you touch an item that has virus on it, if it's been you know sneezed on or coughed on or something along those lines... Like so that's the, the fomite, fomite. That's yeah, the, the fomite. fomite. Okay. Then you touch that, you touch your eyes, you touch your nose, you touch your mouth. That would be the way for the virus to enter into your mucosal membranes.
0: So this is so, another, this is why it's so important to sanitize surfaces as well mm-hmm. on top of all of the stuff. That, Absolutely. On, also, all of the, on top of all of these other things that you can do but uh, sanitizing, making sure that you're sanitizing surfaces.
1: Well, what... Is a great way to help yourself out individually is setting up an area uh, like a quarantine area or a cleaning area when you come into your house. So you can be sure that your house is actually cleanly, whether or not that's like a garage area or a mudroom or laundry room or something along those lines, where you can clean and sanitize everything brought into the house, change clothes, do whatever you may need to, to keep yourself clean and safe, and be sure that the products that you're bringing into your home aren't vectors for the disease.
0: I see. Now, uh, real quick, I wanted to ask you about the face mask because when this all first started happening, the WHO did not recommend that you wear a face mask, Mm -hmm. at least a regular face mask, because they said it would be useless. If it was an N95, then that's a different story, but that you shouldn't be wearing regular face masks because it's pointless and that The hospitals, you know, that's just going to take resources away from the hospitals. Now it appears as though it's been, they've changed their stance on that with like in the past couple days or so. Uh, So I was curious as to what your thoughts were on all of this so that way that the, you know, obviously the public can get the best information available.
1: No, absolutely. Um, So yes, the wearing a face mask back when case counts were relatively low didn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense. And the concern was, if you recommend everybody starts wearing face masks, that that's going to result in people starting to hoard medical supplies, which ultimately occurred anyway. But um, N95 masks, the big difference that they have from, from just like a regular surgical mask that you'd see or something that you would make out of cloth is it actually has a respirator that will filter out the virus, because the virus is too big to, to fit through the respirator, completely encloses the nose and the mouth area. So no virus is actually able to get into your mucosal membranes. So that is why you would do it. And combined with a face shield, you have eye protection then. So if you were to get sneezed directly in your face and you've got an N95 mask and a face shield, you wouldn't get infected. So that wouldn't be true of a surgical mask because you could still have virus, you know, sort of come through around the sides and everything like that. And you could still get infected, but it prevents an effective barrier if you were to accidentally, say, touch your touch your face or something along those lines. Or, if you know, uh, if you were just coming in contact with individual people and everything like that, you don't require that degree of protection that an N95 mask would would present. Um, so it's still a good idea to wear a face mask. It's good practice, but uh, it's something that wasn't you know, recommended until now. And the reason for that is we're reaching rates of infection where you can expect to encounter a good number of infected people every time you're in a situation like going to get food or something along those lines.
0: Okay. Yeah, I don't. I, I didn't look at the numbers today, but I is it 200, over two hundred thousand or three hundred thousand, something like that, active cases in the United States currently. In the U.S., there are
1: four hundred twenty-five thousand cases. Three hundred and eighty-eight thousand of those are active, and there have been fourteen thousand five hundred and ninety deaths um, in the United okay. States as of as of today. As of today. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That number, we're still on an exponential trajectory and I don't, I don't, I don't know when, do you know when the projected peak is? I know it's different from state to state. Uh, do you know what on average it is for the U S though they're thinking right now?
1: The peak of this virus could, you know, be anywhere from the next couple of months all the way to 12 months out. I mean, it just depends on the effectiveness of social distancing measures that you have. So You know, you've probably heard a lot about mathematical modeling and everything like that. And uh, that's where you get the idea of, like, oh, we've hit the peak, you know, and things are going to turn around. Um, So, all these mathematical models are based on certain assumptions. And obviously, we know some of those assumptions better than others. And there are things that we can control and we can't control. But uh, generally, right now, what we're looking at to determine when the localized spread of the virus will stop is we know the basic reproductive number of the virus. So that you've probably heard, if you've watched the movie, Contagion, which a lot of people have at this point, they say, R-naught this, R-naught that, r not whatever. That's what the R-naught is. And it's basically the number of secondary cases that you can expect as a result of a primary case. So. If I'm one person and I'm a index case and I have an r naught of two I can expect to infect two other people if it were three you would give you would expect three other people and so on and so forth and basically what you what you're calculating in these models is you're calculating a herd immunity threshold so herd immunity is the number of individuals that you need to have the disease to prohibit the spread of the virus within the community so there're too many people who have immunity to allow the virus to propagate through, propagate through the population. And it's a super simple calculation. It's just one over the R naught. So we know the R naught's two, one over two is 50%. So that's where you get the numbers of you expect 50% of the people in the United States to become infected before you've reached the sort of herd immunity. peak. Okay. Yeah. So, and, um, You can do a lot of things to reduce that basic reproductive number. One would obviously be if you had a vaccine. So if you had a vaccine, and let's say you even vaccinated 25% of the population, you would only need to have 25% of the remaining population be infected to reach that 50% of herd immunity threshold. Assuming you can't be reinfected with the virus, which we don't know if you can or cannot at this point. Mm -hmm. So... There's a lot of things out, like otherwise that we can do too by, by using our social distancing member, uh, measures, by closing businesses, you're reducing the number of people that you come in contact with and that can reduce that basic reproductive number. So basically the goal of any epidemic model is to bring that reproductive number below one. So that would say if I'm one, if, if I'm one person and my reproductive number is 0.5, I'm only going to cause a half a case. So that's when you start seeing that downward trajectory of the epidemic curve, because you have each individual giving, giving rise to fewer cases than, than have been caused in previous generations.
0: Okay. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I think really highlights the importance of having a vaccine, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, on the last podcast that we did, We were talking a little bit about vaccine hesitancy, anti-vaccine movements, uh, or the rise of anti-science movements in general, and the effect on vaccination rates. And I think, I'm hoping that the world is going to learn uh, a very valuable lesson from seeing what it's like when you are presented with a novel infectious disease that we don't actually have a vaccine for, and how severely it can disrupt society.
1: So, I think that there are going to be a lot of societal, economic, and political changes, and I think that this pandemic is definitely going to change the mentality of uh, of people on an individual level. So I sort of look at it like I'm not by no means my a professional in psychology or anything, but I remember back from a batch my a bachelor's psychology course. There was this thing called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, and I, I'm not any, uh, this is a very layman sort of situation, <laughs> but basically Maslow hypothesized that there is sort of this baseline need that you need to satisfy. First, you need food, then you need water, and then you need shelter, and then you, from there you build art, entertainment and you build arts. And as you become more and more and more developed, your needs become more and more and more refined. And how it sort of applies to this situation, at least in the way that I look at it, is we were so safe for so long from all of these things like just massive wars that, that involved every single corner of the world, massive pandemics, massive natural disasters. It's just like we, of course, all those things happen on a smaller scale but we were very insulated. There was nothing that sort of shook our very foundations of what it was to be human and mortal. And as a result of that, I feel like a lot of people were able to develop these anti-scientific and all, altogether backward sorts of beliefs. The, the things that we prioritize, we were only able to prioritize because we reached such this, this pinnacle of development. And this is a real reality check to a lot of people And I think ultimately what it's going to result in is people realizing that we need to reprioritize some of the things in our life. And um, if ultimately, you know, that means, you know, shifting to a Medicare for all type of health system, because you can't have 25% of your population be uninsured and be susceptible to this this sort of disease and this virus, or it's people who are anti-vaccine like reevaluating the type of situation that they're in and saying, hey, maybe these things aren't aren't so bad. Maybe we should listen to the science. So I think that there's going to be a lot of fallout. And I think that it's going to be a result of us reevaluating sort of what it is to, you know, be human and have these external threats that are actually like a direct threat to our day to day sort of everyday lives.
0: Well, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you. And I really, really hope that this is a wake-up call for a lot of people. Uh, just because, like you said, I think that we've, gr- we've grown way too complacent and kind of don't really appreciate what we have. There's that saying, you don't know how good you have it until it's gone, or you don't know what you have until it's gone. So this is kind of one of those moments for, uh, for humanity, for us as a species. We, don't, we didn't realize how good we had it with our technologies until suddenly we find ourselves in a scenario where we don't have our technology. And uh, one of the reasons why I'm really, really hopeful that this serves as a wake-up call for a lot of people that they should start listening um, to the scientific community uh, more is because of I'm very, very concerned about uh, climate change. And there's a lot of people still who kind of think that that's not real, that we don't really need to uh, do anything about it. You know, in particular, our president says that, at least at the beginning, he said it was a hoax, and but he still doesn't seem to appreciate, well, any science whatsoever, but particularly when it comes to climate change. And I know that with climate change, it is also moving um, what's going to be an exponential trajectory. And... Uh, Well, yeah. So you're going to start seeing you're going to start seeing rates of changes from a temperature standpoint, uh, destabilization of climate patterns. So more storms, more severe storms. um, Not just storms, but like you know natural disaster type events associated with climate. So I'm just really, really hopeful that yeah that not only does this kind of shake people from a from like you know appreciating the vaccine side of things more. Uh, but just appreciating the scientific community more. And then, you know, like, hey, these are experts in knowledge, essentially. And when it comes to serious issues such as a novel virus or the changing climate, uh, these, these people know what they're talking about. And when they are raising red flags saying that, hey, we need to make serious changes, we, we need to pay attention, that, you know, that people start paying attention more.
1: Yeah. I mean, the implications for, for climate change, I mean... I mean, specifically as it relates to novel viruses like coronavirus, are are absolutely staggering. Um, As the climate warms and we are increasingly engaging in practices like deforestation um, or or, um, industrialization, humans are coming into contact with species that we don't normally come into contact with. And that's sort of what gave rise to the coronavirus in the first place, and was the cause of Ebola back in 2014, and um, is is the cause of any number of diseases that you can look back on in history. But there's these species that exist out in out in the world that are reservoirs for diseases that we don't even know about yet, and in this case, the so a reservoir is an animal that carries a disease or a virus, a bacteria, some sort of pathogen, but is unaffected by it themselves. So they live in a state of symbiosis with it. But those those species, although they might not necessarily infect us, they infect intermediaries. And in the case of Ebola, it was bats infecting chimpanzees, which were then hacked for bushmeat and then transmitted the virus, the Ebola virus, to humans. And what we think what happened in the case of the coronavirus is a bat came in contact with a pangolin, which then transmitted the virus to us and humans. And that's sort of the thing that we're most afraid about in flu research is not bats, but birds, for example, we don't get infected with the bird flu, you know, hardly ever or at all, but all it takes is the wrong bird to come in contact with the wrong pig, have a recombination of those antigens, and then we could have another global pandemic on our hands. And as we are increasingly coming in contact with these species, the, the chance that we're gonna experience another novel pathogen like coronavirus increases exponentially. And that's to say nothing of diseases that are currently bound by the current climatological zones that we have. So, for instance, like malaria and dengue and Zika are all mosquito-borne viruses that live in a typically narrow band around the equator. But as the climate warms, the range of these insects is going to increase, and these pathogens are going to be reintroduced into our society, the Western societies. So, there's a lot of combinations of factors that are, and there's also another one too. Uh, there was, um, there was, a, I think it was a caribou. I'm not 100% sure. Don't quote me on it. But it was frozen in the permafrost in Russia. And when that permafrost melted, the individuals who discovered the whatever animal it was were infected with anthrax and it caused a widespread outbreak of anthrax. And that's just, that's a pathogen that had lived and existed in the permafrost melted and then infected a whole group of individuals
0: yeah so potentially to like potentially for thousands of years or maybe not that long well, but who, I mean, who knows not, not in the case of anthrax but there, there yeah. could very well be i mean there could there could be unknown uh sort of some pathogens that are frozen right and that we that are completely foreign to us, they haven't been around like on the surface surviving for a while and for whatever reason, then they become released due to thawing permafrost and then you got...
1: Yeah, I mean, I, again, I don't wanna sound like a conspiracy theorist (laughs) like I'm on the X-Files or something like that, but it's it's certainly certainly possible for us to become exposed to previously extinct species or new species that we have yet to discover in these colder parts of the world And uh, that could cause, you know, massive, it could have a massive impact on, you know, human society. So, but I sort of like the takeaway that I get from, you know, the climate change discussion and the discussion around just advancement in general is it seems like as a human species, we only advance more and more on the precipice of destruction or total annihilation. I mean, it seems like that's where we have these massive, massive steps forward or leaps forward, even in society. And um, I mean, we saw it post—we um, saw it in you know post World War II, for example, or even during World War II. We had things like the atomic bomb that were developed, but also made massive scientific strides forward and um, aerial technology and uh, medicine and. Um, I mean, we developed penicillin, we developed the smallpox vaccine, we developed all these sorts of things. And, um, you know, at the turn of the century, we were, not this century, but the previous century, the turn of the 20th century, um, we were afraid that everybody in the world was going to starve. <laughs> and uh, yeah. we didn't have enough people, we didn't have enough food to feed everybody. We were, at, we were actually harvesting fat guano off like islands out in like the ocean and everything like that to bring home as fertilizer. And uh, that, you know, that we met the challenge. Uh, We had the Haber-Bosch process where they fixated nitrogen from the, from the air and they fixated it in the soil and, you know, made farming and more land arable. And um, I don't know, I'm just hoping we don't have to get to the point where it's like one minute to midnight or like one second to midnight or whatever it may be. For us to realize that we need to make some drastic changes in the way that we approach, we approach this, you know, you know, tiny blue marble that we live on. It's the only one we
0: have. (laughs) No, true. Yeah. Our, uh, our blue, our blue and green spaceship that's floating in a void of blackness. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, No, yeah, it it seems, it's very strange how uh, it seems on average, we're very short sighted in so many ways. Uh, but then when we come together in times of need, uh, the things that we can accomplish, it's, it, it, it's just remarkable. Yeah. Um, it, it's absolutely remarkable. But well, my only concern about global warming is that the processes take so long from like an exponential growth model. Like it's very, very slow in the beginning. And we saw this with, uh, we saw this. With the current pandemic, it's very slow, and then all of a sudden you get explosive growth. And then if we do this with, uh, we allow this to happen with global warming, then you know we're going to find ourselves in a situation where we don't know what to do. Like we're going to be losing entire ecosystems, and we just don't have the technologies in order to fix it. Uh, so that's the only reason why I'm still very concerned about global warming is because of how long it's actually going to take. To uh, correct course, because even if we were to shut off CO two today, and all other greenhouse gases, you know, you would still see rising temperatures for decades. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Yeah, actually, because CO two stays in the atmosphere; it has a half life of like two hundred years or something like that. So, not only are we going to have to develop technologies to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, but we absolutely need to develop technologies that capture. Uh, greenhouse gases fixates them out of the atmosphere and we so we we can do something with them other than leave them in the atmosphere to continue to warm the atmosphere so yeah yeah it's it's all very a little bit concerning but uh yeah it's (laughs) things things are definitely interesting right now um i try to tell people that the world is not ending um it's just we're gonna have to get used to a different way of life in the uh, immediate future
1: it's not even just the immediate immediate future it's until we can have until the vaccine is until the you know, I, I assume the vaccine is, you know, going to be imminent insofar. By imminent I mean in terms of vaccine development. It is going to come much more quickly than a typical vaccine will, because like we've been talking about, great advancements happen in society when humanity is tested. But I'm still not expecting a vaccine to be approved and ready for distribution for another 12 to 18 months. So, this is going to be our reality for a for a long time, and people should be prepared to hunker down and I, I hate to say it, but sort of become more accustomed to these solitary sort of lives that that we're lead, that we're leading now. And um, I mean. The only thing I can say is we need to take advantage of the technologies that we have to be sure that we're not isolated, like FaceTime and Zoom like we're using now and Skype and all that sort of stuff. But we need to be finding sort of alternative ways to to relate to one another. And I mean, from a public health perspective, I imagine that we're going to see massive increases in the rates of... Uh, depression and anxiety and all sorts of mental health disorders, because people are sort of confined to quarters. I um, also imagine that there's probably going to be increases in domestic abuse, not to mention increases in poverty, and increases in chronic diseases overall, because, you know, people are unable to be eating healthy, they're living in poverty, eating processed foods, all of those sorts of things. I mean, we've already seen the data is bearing out that people of color are disproportionately affected by this pandemic, and it's not something that I'm particularly surprised about because these are people who are, people of color are typically individuals who already have higher rates of chronic conditions, higher rates of poverty, lower rates of insurance, and those are the individuals that, are the like unsung heroes that are working grocery stores, bus drivers, working you know in public transportation? Those are the people who are our essential workers that we never thought were essential before, but they're getting underpaid and overutilized right now, and that's exposing them to the virus in greater proportions. And once infected, a African American or somebody who's Hispanic. Or any other racial minorities, they're far more likely to die than us, you know, uh, us non-minorities, us white folks, and um, that's really unfortunate. And sort of speaks to the overall society that we've created here in America. So I, I guess my yeah, my point there is, you know, I hope that I hope that this changes how we look at people how we
0: oh no absolutely people. yeah like the, I, the, the whole essential worker thing too exactly. and then looking at the statistics and whatnot but uh yeah the the cashier at your local grocery store that's an essential person mm-hmm. and person how many who, people would have thought that before this right. and then
1: the person who picks up your trash the person yeah. who drives your bus route the male people who are delivering all of our packages all the ups drivers the usps workers all the people who are working in Amazon factories right now, or Amazon warehouses, I mean, to produce like essential goods for us. It's just I hope we reevaluate what we what we look at as essential and realize that you know those people who we need right now can't survive at like seven twenty five an hour. You know, those people that we consider essential need to be you know incorporated more into society, be given fair wages, be given health care. And, um, you know, hopefully it'll contribute to a more egalitarian society because even when you, you saw massive even disparities in testing right when tests became available, you saw people who were very wealthy and affluent who were getting access to these tests over people who were, you know, uh, more middle class or poor. And um, that, that's just really unfortunate that we've got such a huge divide and disparity in, in America. Here. And hopefully that, that, that'll be one of the, the consequences of those viruses is people, people realizing that, you know, we all are part of a part of a community. We're part of a unit. Like not every one of us is like this rugged individual who's going out there and, you know, making it in the world on their own. We're dependent on other people. And I think that that's why, you know, we've seen such a drastic, drastically different response in the outbreak uh, or in the pandemic compared in Eastern countries compared to Western countries. And that's why you've I think seen Eastern countries more effectively control this pandemic is because they have this more communitarian perspective as opposed to our individualistic perspective here in the West. So I, I think that there's some, some things that are, that are
0: at play there. No, oh, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's all very interesting. Uh, bear with me for one moment. I actually have to plug my computer a computer in here before I lose you. Uh, there we go. I <laughs> forgot to do that before we started. Anyway, uh, yeah, the I think that's really interesting that you think that the East one of the reasons why they had such a better response to all of this is because of the more of a community feel. And I know exactly what you're talking about uh, that they embrace versus our more or less rugged individualism here uh, in the states, where uh, you know, even though we live in a community and depend upon all of each other, and you know, at the end of the day, we are human. We're primate. We, the vast majority of us, are fond of the company of others. Even us introverts that don't no. find this too <laughs> terribly difficult, we still need to interact with other humans. <laughs> uh, that that has led to perhaps a poorer response just because of that little, uh, little tweak in philosophy of just not, not embracing the community that we live in as much. I mean, and it's completely antithetical, in my opinion, to what it means to be a human. Like we live in groups, that's what we do, and we're all dependent. Society is so incredibly complex, there's no way, unless you're willing to go live in the Alaskan bush, which some people do, uh, you know, by I've yourself. Seen, I've
1: seen the history show. Yeah, oh, I've, 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 watched, that I've <laughs> watched that show. I've watched that show.
0: So yeah, no, it's, it's it's all very interesting. Um, well, I, I mean, think it's a huge difference
1: in perspective. So I feel like Westerners, Westerners generally view the world society as a zero-sum game, where for you to benefit, somebody else has to you know, suffer, they have to come up short. So they view things as there's limited resources, there's limited wealth, there's limited power. And it's just, we try and snatch up as as much as we can. And we try and hold on to it, because we're so afraid that we're going to lose it. And we don't even realize that none of those things are the things that that are important. Like there is more than enough to go around, there's 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 more than enough um, for everybody to to have enough. I mean, the world that we live in is bountiful, but yeah, it's just it's just uh, it's just a perspective that that we have here in the West. And I think that not even just that we have as individuals, but we have in our foreign policy at national level at the at the national level. I, I truly believe that there are a lot of people, there are a lot of Western countries that believe that to succeed, necessarily, other individuals must suffer or must fail. Mm. And that is just, that is a horrible way to, to look at things and entirely non-productive.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I, I mean... Yeah, the, the pie isn't static. There, there's nothing right. written anywhere that says the pie is static and it's one size. And if you like, this is the zero sum analogy that you were talking about earlier that you have a pie and that if you want more of the pie, you have to take it from somebody else. I mean, yeah. it's dynamic. You're able to grow it. And part of the prosperity that we've enjoyed over the past hundred years or so is because we've been able, we've developed various technologies and processes and things of that nature in order to. Expand that pie to make it bigger, so that way, you know, everyone can have a little bit more. And I'm not saying that it all has to be the equal size, right? No, I That's, mean, but but yeah, I don't you think don't
1: anybody's advocate, like. I, at least I'm not, but I think that I'm not talking about like a massive like Marxist redistribution of wealth <laughs> yeah, here or no, anything no. like that. But I, or even like any sort of redistribution of wealth, I just am talking about like the perspective that we have and the way that we view ourselves and the way that we view others and the way that we interact with people. I think that we have this mentality and I think that that mentality is, is a cancer and it's just pervasive and corrosive and is just all consuming. And um, I don't know, I'm thinking that we're hoping at least that uh, as a potential, I I don't want to say silver lining because obviously I wouldn't wish I would if I could go back and, you know, solve the pandemic before it ever happened, I obviously would. But um, I'm hoping that that we realize that, that people matter in general and that everybody is useful and everybody is a producing member of society. And, like, that's why I always am just so frustrated. The way we look at things economically here in the United States, um, it's just like... Uh, like you talk you talk about, you know, wealthy individuals and you talk about like resistance to taxing them and putting them in like lower tax brackets and whatnot. And they're like, oh, well, these are the people who are producing the wealth. They've, they've made all this money. They should, you know, be able to keep it. And I'm like, well, the reason why a person is wealthy is because we're buying their goods or we're using their services or something along those lines. Like a person doesn't get wealthy just because they fabricated money out of, you know, thin air. It's because they're part of the society that has contributed to that wealth. And I think that we need to, you know, have a, have a different perspective on that as well, that, you know, we need to start looking more towards the collective and the community as opposed to the individual.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, I categorically agree. People over profits. Uh, yeah. uh, that's uh, I think one of the biggest things that is hindering our society and causing it to slide backwards Ah, uh, currently is the development of a capitalistic society into what is called like crony capitalism, which is just the maximal pursuit of profits above all else. and just the outcomes that that leads to doesn't always mean that it's the best for society. Uh, so anyway, yeah, super interesting. Uh, one last thing that I wanted to ask you uh, before I uh, before we wrap things up here is, the so China's now out of lockdown, so they were in lockdown for approximately two months or so. Well, okay, so let's let's
1: let's, let's 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 equivocate what that concept. So there's so a lot of people are thinking like out of lockdown just means we snap our fingers, everybody's back to work, the economy's mm-hmm. open, we're going you know, going home, full bore into you know just everyday life that's not the case. So China's selectively opening up various parts of their country and their economy and they're they're doing things at a very measured pace. And that's how the United States eventually has to come out of this this quarantine situation that we're in. So there are going to be a lot of stutter starts. Like there's going to be a lot of stops and starts. So when you open back up society, the economy when you de when you you know, take away a lot of these restrictions that we have on travel, there are going to be additional outbreaks, there is going to be increases in case counts. The important thing is, we realize that we've tested it, and then we need to revert back to the quarantine. So just, I'll let you go on with your question. But I just wanted to be clear, like, China isn't just opening everything up, like they're taking a very measured, very mm-hmm. intelligent approach to how they're opening back up the 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 country in general
0: no yeah i, I appreciate the clarity uh, but yeah i was just I was just curious as okay so so China's now coming out of a quarantine or lockdown, whatever sort of uh, terminology you would like to use, and they're doing it um, in the most judicious man- manner possible, which is a little bit here and a little bit there and I was curious as to if you're If any new data is coming in yet about, uh, not reinfection, but uh, new infection, like the cases climbing or are they continuing to go down or what's going on here? I mean, I'm assuming that you're going to get new infections as you relax social distancing measures, but Mm -hmm. the key is going to be, oh, is this something that the healthcare system can bear? Are the, the new amount of infections something that we can handle? And then we can continue up to a point. And then once we get to that point, we, you know, we can't really open up anything else because the, I mean, how would you even go about gauging that? What are you seeing from uh, the Chinese numbers? Yeah. So, so far as I know, we don't
1: have any, you know, new and fresh data out of China, um, other than just regular sort of case counts that, that have been rolling in, which are still very small and unsubstantial. And they're in the infancy of, you know, sort of reopening things back up. but. So this, this sort of goes to like a, a larger point in, in tactic in how you deal with widespread outbreaks or pandemics is, so the whole purpose of quarantine is, yes, to, to flatten that curve, but you're reducing the number of individuals who are infected with the virus and can transmit it. So for every individual that you quarantine and you keep out of, you keep out of um, you know, circulation, you're preventing two cases. And those two hypothetical cases, you prevented four cases. And from those four hypothetical cases, you prevented eight, and then 16, mm-hmm. and then 32, and 64, and 128. So by preventing that, that, the spread of that one case to two people, you cut off a whole branch of potential infections. So the whole goal is to reduce the number of individuals who are infected with the virus to a lower uh, a low sufficiently low and acceptable number to believe that by opening back up certain parts of the country and the economy it's not going to lead to substantial widespread outbreaks mm-hmm. and they're able to do that now because of i there's there's one factor above all else that is just absolutely essential and any sort of outbreak response. And that's the ability to count cases. So the fact that we have, you know, fast and expeditious tests now, and they've lowered their cases to a small number, they can test people very rapidly, they can identify new cases, and they can identify close contacts and quarantine those individuals. So they've reached such a point from a public health perspective, that they feel like, they can prevent any sort of widespread outbreaks going forward. And obviously, if they're incorrect in that assumption, then they can shut back down. Um, then they can shut back down and go back into quarantine. The United States is nowhere near where China is in terms of controlling the spread of disease, we're still seeing massive day-over-day increases in the number of cases. And that's particularly true in the number of hot spots around the country. And in New York, for example, New York has more cases than any other country except the United States. And that's only because it's part of the United States. So it's just like a a massive, massive hot, hot, hot spot for infection. But the United States is just now four months into the pandemic getting to a place where we can test people in sufficient numbers to identify cases quickly enough to be able to do the contact tracing and be able to selectively quarantine individuals. So it's taken us a long time to get here. And that's why, I I mean, that's why we, we've got so many cases, frankly, and our cases are a drastic underrepresentation of the number of, of true cases that we actually have. So the cases that are being counted, those are confirmed cases, those are positive tests. But there's been some evidence to suggest using using data from China that the true number of cases is up to a factor of 10 lower than the actual number of cases that that we're experiencing. So the United States has 425,000. That could potentially be something like 4 million cases. And um, that's just just because we haven't developed the testing capabilities to test everybody who needs to be tested. So where was I going with this? Um, In general, uh, the United States just... Did not respond effectively or adequately in the initial phases of the outbreak, and you can compare the United States to places who have successfully addressed um, addressed the outbreak and Germany is one, and South Korea I would say is the other that are just two giant success stories so if you look at if you look at Germany, it has roughly the same amount of of cases is France and Italy does, confirmed cases, but their deaths, I'm looking at the numbers right now, Germany only has 2,200 deaths compared to 17,000 in Italy and almost 11,000 in France. And that's because Germany identified cases earlier, their case count more accurately reflects the true case count and they've got lower mortality rates because they were able to identify individuals sooner the Mm -hmm. same thing is true in south korea where there's a massive widespread community testing so testing is the is the true key to the beginning of developing an outbreak response and the united states just hasn't had the capacity to to do
0: that yet and you wouldn't say that the united states response or lack of response was because of lack of information correct I mean, no, they had the not same not they had the same information as every other country because I know that uh, the President Trump initially called it a hoax, and then uh, transitioned it, you know, various stages as it got worse and worse to, you know, I knew about this all along, and now he has recently, in order to cover up all of the lack of initiative on his end, not wanting to do anything, in my opinion, because he feared that it was going to hurt his chances for re-election. He is now scapegoating the WHO and threatening to withhold uh, to withhold uh, funding. And uh, it's, it, it's just unbelievable.
1: <laughs> well, I, the Trump presidency is such a, is such an interesting sort of case study because Trump often, I I've said this a number of times. Hey, babe, he's eating a hat. Our dog's eating a hat right now. <laughs> but, <laughs> That's uh, not good. No, not at all. We saved it though. But um, so, what are they saying? The um, the the Trump presidency exists in this post-truth society where facts don't seem to matter. And the only thing that matters is the spin or the narrative that, that they suit. But they've come, that, that mentality can only take you so far because when you're crashing with something that's an inevitable and immovable force like the coronavirus, when if it's something that you don't address, it is something that is going to propagate through the, po- through the population. When you bring that mentality in, you just reduce every possible capacity that you could have to ever hope to control the coronavirus. So just the policies from the, from the top down in the federal government were just completely bungled from the very beginning. And to your initial question, no, it wasn't because there was a lack of, of information. I mean, the first case was confirmed in China December 31st, and we didn't truly start becoming concerned with coronavirus response until until maybe early to mid march so there was there's a substantial amount of time to become prepared here in the united states but there's there's a lot of things that that are wrong um, with the with the public health system here in the united states but uh, a lot of it comes back to funding and the defunding of essential organizations like Outbreak and pandemic response teams at like the federal level, cutting CDC funding, making the CDC more of a politicized organization as opposed to an independent organization, just becomes it just becomes very difficult, and um, yeah, and I mean that that speaks to our overall you know sort of political system, but. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't want to go too much down a rabbit rabbit hole talking about Trump yeah. because, I mean, we could sit here all day and talk about him and, you know, how he responded and to this particular thing and how he's been acting the past, you know, three years or so. All I'll say is, I'll leave it at this, is that from an objective standpoint, this isn't my belief or anything like that. This, you can look at the response... In America, and you can compare it to successful countries, and you can say that the policies that were implemented by countries who were successful at curtailing the coronavirus outbreak were not implemented here in the United States, and to a large extent, those were because of, of political political reasons or the yeah. lack of political will. So, and I will also say that the. Trump administration is is not a reliable source of information. So when you're going out and you're looking at information on how to protect your family, you're looking at, you know, what potential um, remedies that you could use or how to protect yourself, like, uh, don't go out and try and buy chloroquine, people. It's It's not going to work for you. It's not going to reduce the severity of your disease. There's nothing that is proven that. And it's just like that's just one example of President Trump touting a drug that has no proven connection to reducing the severity of the coronavirus. But I mean, there's endless examples. It's just the information that you get should, should come from, from more reliable sources, more vetted sources.
0: Um, no, yeah, absolutely. It, 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 how unfortunate is it that the people of the United States can't get good information, they can't get the facts? uh, from our current administration.
1: Yeah. And it's unfortunate
0: because uh, even some news sources.
1: So I, I would say specifically Fox news in this case, um, is, is a major news organization. I think it's the number one viewed news station in the entire country. And it, it, basically disseminated what amounted to propaganda in the beginning stages of the of the outbreak here in the united states and they've since shifted but it's just it's irresponsible reporting from an organization that claims to provide news to the people and they're reporting things that are just that are just completely untrue and have no factual basis and that's the news the number one news source for people in america so it's just, it, we've reached like a perilous, perilous time for for information and for truth and for facts. And people are people are having to go to degrees that they never had to go to before to validate the information that they're getting from people who they are supposed to be able to trust. Yeah. So I would just say in these times, just don't rely on don't rely on information that you can't that you can't vet, that you can't determine where the source came from and i mean a perfect example is the white house's estimate now that between a, they're expecting between 100,000 and 200,000 deaths in the us that's based on no model no factual basis the cdc hasn't shared any information that's validated that number it's just a fabrication at this point so I, I mean that's that's even that that's that's something that's you know been touted by the Trump administration, saying if we have only a hundred thousand deaths, we will have been successful in preventing you know this this pandemic, but it's it's not based in facts. Like there are no yeah. models to show that.
0: That's just like hey, let's just pick a random number out of a hat. Yeah, and I will say one hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, and like <laughs> that's I mean, what we're gonna that, go with. That number did, to my knowledge,
1: come from Dr. Fauci, which is, he's the head of the National Institute of Health, or National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and number one infectious disease doc in the country. But I think that that was just something that was a a, a personal, like, sort of assumption or something along those lines, like, saying that's what he expected, but it's being taken as, like, fact and sort of okay. run away. So it's just, like, again, that where your sources are coming from, like, there was a truly astounding piece that was published by the Imperial College um, out of London. And they ran all of these different sort of simulations and mathematical models. And those are like the numbers that we, that we should be using. And those are the numbers that we should expect to see. And um, it, like that's just rigorously scientifically validated, peer reviewed information. And thankfully that information was disseminated in the popular press but you didn't see anything about it on the cdc website you didn't see anything about it you know in press releases or anything like that you didn't see Trump talking about it so you don't see you don't see facts being being talked about and disseminated in you know proper proportions okay yeah so that's, And what that's what, the what, what
0: what are the numbers saying so based off of the best science that we currently have available uh, what is it looking at as far as the total number of infections i know that you said 32 40 to 70% of the population, in fact, will contract uh, COVID-19 or contract the virus, and then what percentage uh, would you say, or the number of Americans that will unfortunately uh, lose their their lives
1: to this? Yeah, so the Imperial College London, uh, the the study that I mentioned before, um, this was published a couple of weeks ago, and obviously things are fluid and ever-changing, but they published a variety of scenarios. Um, So like I said, these mathematical models, they're based on assumptions. So they selected different assumptions and came to various mathematical conclusions based on those assumptions. So they said, if we did nothing in the United States, we could expect 2.2 million deaths. and if we are doing if we sort of have moderate moderately embrace um these sort of quarantine procedures, social distancing, all of these all of these sort of moderate approaches to controlling the to controlling the pandemic, we could expect about one point one million deaths and if we did more rigorous um more rigorous Sort of uh, prevention methods, then it would be it would be less than that. I'm not sure what the figure for that is. I don't know if they ran it for less than moderate, but Um, still
0: more than 100,000 to 200,000 is what the Imperial College is thinking.
1: 100 to 200,000 is beyond any sort of short of us having a vaccine becoming very expeditiously available. I cannot see. The United States having just 100,000 deaths. It seems very low to me. Um, the 1.1 million figures seems a whole lot more accurate. So let's go based on the numbers that we're expected the number of cases that we expect to see here in the United States. And that's all based on those herd immunity thresholds and um, the figures that we talked about earlier. So we can expect anywhere between 100 and 150 million cases in the United States, all right? We have an accepted mortality rate of about three and a half percent. So if you look at mortality rate of three and a half percent and you expect between 100 million and 150 million cases, I mean, at 100 million, that would be 3.4 million. At 150 million, that would be uh, 4.9 million. So you would, you would Expect to see that that many deaths mm-hmm. if that mortality rate held true. The mortality rate's likely inflated because it's only accounting confirmed cases. And the United States, for all of its failings in the public health response, does have some of the best hospitals, medical technology, best doctors, best nurses in the world. So you can expect the reduction of that mortality rate based on that. And then based on Those social distancing measures, the quarantine procedures, everybody working from home, uh, isolating in confirmed cases—you can expect that number to drastically decrease. So, if we get to that under one percent figure, then we can expect, you know, between a million and a million five deaths. Okay, Uh, that's generally like so. That's where, like, taking a very zoomed out sort of perspective on it, without getting too much into the science. If you apply those different assumptions, you can see how things would work if we had done nothing, if we just existed in the vacuum and we just, you know, had all of our flights on, didn't close any restaurants, didn't, uh, you know, didn't tell people to go home, let people who were sick come to work, like all that sort of stuff. You can see like a worst case type of scenario, but you can see us whittling down on that with all of the various precautions that, that we're going to be taking okay and also hopefully we can reduce the number of infections if we can eventually get a uh, vaccine somewhere down the line but it all goes towards that flattening the curve concept we need to be sure that we don't have drastic increases of cases at any one time so we have a we have a health system that's not overburdened with sick individuals so what that means is the outbreak is going to drag on for a long period of time. So you can expect, you can expect probably, I would say 12 to 18 months before everything's resolved. Like those are the figures that, that I'm seeing, um, before, you know, we sort of reach our herd immunity threshold. So, but that's, that's not even taking into account the fact that if people are susceptible to reinfection, um, it, there could be some sort of seasonal component to coronavirus, like we see with the influenza virus, where it's something that we're going to have to address year after year after year. What I will say is that once you develop the vaccine for something, it's typically easier to like adapt it and modify it. That's why we're able to so rapidly develop new influenza vaccines every season. But it could be something that we live with for, for a very long time, potentially with no end.
0: Um, yeah. Well hopefully it just doesn't disrupt our society to the degree that it's currently disrupting it in the future. You know, as more and more people are exposed to it and uh they become immune to it, we develop a vaccine. Uh, I mean potentially it becomes flu-like where it just you know travels and then you get you know, it undergoes undergoes these uh various sort of metamorphoses and then you get new viruses and you have to deal with it then. Uh but yeah it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out and uh, yeah, it's definitely uh, an interesting uh, an interesting time to be alive. Uh, one more thing that I wanted to ask you uh, before I let you go here is who would you recommend that people listen to? So we talked about how they can't... It's not good information that's coming from this current administration. Uh, one news outlet in particular, uh, Fox News, at least in the beginning, appeared to be dis- disseminating what you said was propaganda. So... I mean, I don't know how they're doing now, but who would you recommend? I mean, I know that like when I, through social media and various uh, articles that I've written, at least one article, and, you know, I tell people to listen directly to the scientific community, but I was, I was curious as to uh, what your thoughts are on it. Who, who should people tune into, you know, just for, for the facts, obviously they don't want the overly technical aspects of, uh, you know, studying diseases and whatnot, but just where they can go to get basic good numbers.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's often the problem with telling people like, we, you know, you need to be trusting scientists is there's such a delineation between the scientific community and the everyday community. Scientists, we, you know, you and I, we, we publish in these journals that are read by other epidemiologists or other physicists and hardly read by anybody else, right? Right. Yeah. We don't have a clear mode of dissemination to the public. So oftentimes it's the journalists that are gatekeepers, right? So journalists are the people who will take our conclusions and they'll look at them and they'll boil them down to a line or two and sort of disseminate those in articles to, to people. So unfortunately, where we're at now is I think oftentimes... Just people in general have to rely on journalists and they have to rely on publications to to get to the information that they need. What they need to be sure is need to be sure of is that the popular press that they're looking at are staying true to the sources and they're providing accurate information. So some of the things that I read are uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, BBC, Al Jazeera. Uh, Business Insider's actually posted some awesome stuff on coronavirus, mm-hmm. but um, those are popular press articles that you can that you can use. But with coronavirus in particular, there are just there's such a wealth of information coming out of academic institutions. So if you go to Johns Hopkins website, they've got great tools, great information. The same is true at LSU, my institution. Um, Uh, Emory, all of these other, all of these other places are putting out easily accessible, easily readable information that's coming directly from scientists. So something like that, using a trusted, a trusted institution in public health, is is a good way to look for information too.
0: So, I'm assuming the Who's on that list as well. The Who, uh, the Who has, I'm um, assuming a website, a coronavirus website. Yeah, uh, where you can get the basic facts about it. Maybe yeah, yeah. common myths to debunk things of that nature
1: and the thing is i'm I'm deviating more and more from places like the c d c and the w h o who on their own are are great organizations they put out great work, they employ fantastic people, the top people in their fields, but the c d c and the w h o are both Political organizations at at their heart. So I'm not saying that they're putting out information that's that's false, but I'm saying that you might not get all of the information from those sites. Mm-hmm. So I know, for example, the CDC has <clears throat> taken down the number of tests that they've administered, be like sort of in an effort to say like the United States isn't so far behind every other country in terms of the amount of tests administered. So that information was taken down. So you'll get accurate information on like transmission and, you know, how to protect yourself and all those sorts of things. But don't use that as like your, your sole, your sole source of information, because they're not gonna, like, they're not gonna link you to like the Imperial College article, they're not gonna link you to different like academic, academic articles and stuff like that so they'll the information that you get there will be good but it might not necessarily be complete i guess is what i'm trying to say so okay. don't mistrust them but no i mean that it's, it's important to have multiple sources right exactly yeah. okay know that there know that there is more information available to you and not all of it is going to be presented to you on a site like the cdc or the who or something like that
0: okay i see yeah. All right. Well, anyway, I just wanted to thank you so much for uh, joining me, Dr. Maloney. Uh, it's been uh, it's been really informative. Yeah, congratulations on uh, your recent recent uh, recent di- dissertation defense and all of that. Uh, that's gotta that's gotta feel awesome. So uh, yeah, it was it was wonderful. Thanks so much for joining us. For those uh, tuning in, until next time.
1: All right. Thanks for having me.
0: I'll Absolutely. see you guys later. Thinking critically was brought to you by Grips Visual Marketing. They helped me to bring this podcast to life um, when it was just an idea. So that being said, if you're wanting to do a podcast and a need don't exactly know where to get started or perhaps you need some video services, make sure to check them out. You can find their information in the show notes.